Greetings, church. My name's Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Grateful, as always, to get to open up the Bible with you today and consider God's Word. So please meet me in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80 will be our primary text as we consider our study in the first couple of chapters of Luke as we experience this Advent season together. And so having heard these words already read, I'd like to pray, ask for God's help, and then we will get to work. Sound good? So Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you would speak to us. Uh, I pray that you would calm my heart and pray that you would help me to hear from you, your still small voice that, that, that leads and guides and directs and corrects. And, and I pray that as I'm Father, desiring to be available to you to that end, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters. Would you help them? Would they hear from you that they'd be filled up with great joy uh, despite the, the sorrow or celebration of this past week? Would you fill them up with thoughts of you, with a desire to submit, to obey your, to your word, and that you would unite us as your people today as we consider what it even means to be the people of God? I pray that you'd encourage us as such. So, I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. I pray that for myself. Help us, God, we ask. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said amen. Well, part of what we considered last week is this idea of questions that both Mary, who we've learned about in this first chapter, the, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, each had questions when Gabriel the angel came to them and said that they respectively were about to become parents of pretty notable uh, boys. Uh, Zachariah, of course, to John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Jesus, who would say, prepare, make the way of the Lord, the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and Mary, whose son would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of the living God. And, and their responses are similar and dissimilar. Similar in that they had questions, we get that, but dissimilar in that Zachariah's questions, uh, question came with doubt. Mary's came with uh, humility and with curiosity. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that Jesus does not treat every question the exact same way. That when a question comes by way of humility and curiosity, he encourages it. But when a question comes as a way of pandering to a particular audience or trying to posture oneself in pride, Jesus dismisses and even criticizes that particular question asking because Jesus is completely opposed to pride and willful ignorance. And so he is especially critical, Jesus is, of those who should know better or of those who are choosing not to educate themselves or submit to the word of God that they do know. And so thus far in Luke, we've seen these both, both of these types of questions that we really see throughout the entire New, New Testament. So Zachariah asks a question, but he doubts. Mary asks a question because she's curious. And so Mary's question is answered. Her, her question is answered. Specifically, she asks, how am I going to be a mom if I am a virgin? And the angel Gabriel explains to her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. Zachariah says, how am I going to be a dad? Because me and my wife are incredibly old. Um, and Gabriel, uh, through the power of God, silences Zachariah. So his lips have been sealed. He's been unable to talk as a result of his pride. So Mary goes on to sing and celebrate with this sort of like revolutionary uh, kingdom joy. And now we come to Zechariah. What's happened to him? Luke has sort of paused 
his situation, uh, told us about Mary, told us about the coming of Christ. And now we pick back up that story. Zechariah is still mute and perhaps even unable to hear. And his son is about, has been born and now is about to be circumcised and named. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called his, him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. A couple of things that should jump out to us right away about these first few verses of this passage. The themes of joy and community are continued on from previous passages here in Luke chapter 1. See, similar to Mary's song, an event has taken place to a single person and that that experience or the power, the, the veracity, the truth of that experience is then applied to the entire community, to an entire people and so the joy that these, these neighbors celebrate carries on this theme that we heard Mary so exuberantly sing about. So they celebrate, notice verse 58, that the Lord has shown her, that's Elizabeth, mercy. In, in other words, in some respects, these, these good friends, these people who were in community with Elizabeth found good pleasure, good fortune, or rather a great joy in the good fortune of a good friend, right? This should be normal for any good friend. In fact, one of the ways to know that somebody is a genuine friend is that they truly rejoice in your joy, that they are not jealous, they don't begrudge your joy, they actually celebrate with you. And so here we see neighbors, friends gathering around, not unlike we do today, uh, pre and post COVID and pandemic, we gather around new parents and celebrate their, their joy. But they also know what Zechariah knew. Uh, and we can kind of pick that up on the specific kind of language that they use. They, they knew that Elizabeth was old. That wasn't a secret. And so part of their joy, notice that, that, that God has shown her mercy, not just because she is a mom, but because she is advanced in her years. And so they celebrate along with what Gabriel pronounced to Mary, that nothing will be impossible with God, that he can do anything. He has shown her mercy and the community then rejoices together as a group of people. And about community, what should also jump out to us from this text is not just joy in general and community in general, but particularly these communal expectations and traditions and customs in this scene. I wonder if you picked up on them. There's this custom of circumcising the boy at the eighth day and, and of course giving him a name, though it's hard to understand whether or not it was uh, habitual for a community to wait eight days or to name a child at the, the very moment or the very day of their birth. Um, but it is really odd to see the community so involved. Did you, did you pick up on It seems a bit odd that a community is not only present on the eighth day, not only present for the circumcision, but they're like, yo, we know what you should name this child. Now, I think it's less odd if you have experienced this before when naming a child, you find that it's pretty problematic to include others in your decision-making process, right? That if you have a particular name that you'd like to name your child, you should just do it, not leave it to a vote or share um, particular options that you're thinking about, even with people who are close with you. 
there, there can be confusion, there can be tension, there can be a varying of opinions, which doesn't always lead to peaceableness, right? Are you with me? So th- these neighbors are all voting. They're all casting their vote for Zechariah because it's a family name. But Mama, Mama slows their roll. She's like, that's not what his name is going to be. She says his name is going to be John. Why? Because that's what Gabriel had told Zechariah. And we can discern then that, that likely Zechariah found a way of communicating to Elizabeth uh, that this was supposed to be the boy's name. But the community doesn't like it, do they? The community starts pushing back a little bit and going, but no one you who's in your family, you don't have any relatives named John. But what about Zechariah? So they sort of turn to him, and though he is unable, and again, likely, as we'll read, unable to hear, unable to speak, and likely unable to hear for the duration of the pregnancy, what does he have to say? Look at verse 68 or 62. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors and on all. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. So Elizabeth's age was enough. It was enough for the community to celebrate and to marvel at the mercy of God and his hand upon this family's story. However, not now, without any explanation, or, or rather the community is sort of befuddled by this. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out how is it that Zachariah, unable to communicate, it knows the name that Mary has also said is going to be the rare or rather unexpected name of this particular child. So this unique birth now is extended well beyond previously understood. So they, with this eager expectation mounting within them, what's, what's up with this child? What's going on with this child? Because God is obviously with him. Now, before we press on, let's consider what's just happened. Why was Zechariah, notice he was released from his silence. So why was he released? Well, if a question which revealed his doubt and pride led to the consequence, then it makes sense for us to understand that in recalling what the angel instructed him, specifically the name that this child would be called, and applying this knowledge with faith to the name of his son, Zachariah has been sufficiently humbled, and now he believes. Trust opened his mouth, faith loosed his lips, Surrender released his tongue and opened his ears, and humility released words of blessing from his heart. So Zechariah has experienced what, what is best understood as the essence of salvation. Remember, God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. That's salvation. The lifting up, the renewing of one who was previously enslaved to sin, bound up by the trappings of this world. What we see in Zechariah is someone who has been loosed from a particular kind of bondage. He has been freed. He has, God has relented the consequence for his sin. He has forgiven him through this demonstration of faith. So the God of the Bible then is not only that benevolent and that generous and that gracious, but we might simply just say that he is a God of second chances. He is a God who, who in this particular moment allows Zechariah 
to join in the joy of his son by affirming his faith in the Lord. See, when Zechariah first hears the news about this baby boy, his first words are those of doubt. When Zechariah gets another chance, what are his first words? Praise, celebration, gratitude. See, Zechariah is freed from a silent bondage, but this is not just personal. This isn't just about Zechariah. Like Mary, he understands something about salvation within the context of his community, with even part of a story of a people. Remember, Mary's song was all about the reversal of earthly powers in government and economics and, and in society. She's not just celebrating a baby on the way, but that this baby, this particular baby, in her own mind and understanding of what the angel has communicated to her, is the fulfillment of God's promises and the power to exalt his people. And so in the same way, Zechariah experiences personally what he knows to be true communally or corporately for all of Israel. In fact, he can't disconnect the two. So this prophecy, what we're about to read, is a celebration of the communal nature of salvation, that Zechariah is not celebrating something or enjoying something or experience something that's just for him. It's a celebration of what God is doing for his people, God's saving work for his people through the Messiah. And then after he communicates this, the saving work of God for his people, he'll answer that question from his neighbors. What Will this child be? What's going on with this child? And in each case, what, what Zachariah is ultimately communica- communicating, what he's celebrating, is that salvation is communal. Listen to how Zechariah responds in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah's big point that he is communicating, that he's celebrating, is that salvation is communal. It's about our people. Did you notice that? It's about more than just him. It's some personal experience that he has had. What's more, I think that Zechariah has about three things, not about, but three things, uh, Uh, that he wants to communicate or that he desires to communicate about salvation, which are really sort of different vantage points of this same idea that salvation is communal. Zechariah says that God has visited and redeemed his people, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's that's verses uh, 67 through 69. He has established this salvation, that, that salvation is communal. And then he celebrates these three distinct ideas or ways that this salvation is expressed and experienced communally through a fulfilled promise to a people, to the gift, through the gift of mercy to a people, and a type of righteous bondage that, that, that is shared. So it's salvation's promise, salvation's mercy, and salvation's bondage. These are three ways that he talks about salvation as a communal experience. Notice in verses 69 through 72 that salvation is a fulfilled promise. That the 
promise was spoken by the prophets, not just to an individual, but to the house of David, Israel. And then in verse 27, says that to our fathers through a covenant. So salvation is a promise made to a community and fulfilled for the sake of that community. Not just individual, but for the sake of community. Not only salvation's promise, but salvation's mercy. Salvation is a mercy given to, what? A people. Zechariah says that part of the salvific work of God is victory over enemies. But notice the word mercy in verse 72. Many of the enemies that Israel faced throughout their history, they they experienced oppression or um, some sort of... uh, consequence because God was saying you're being disobedient. So so ultimately, these are not people coming at Israel in their innocence. These are people that God is allowing to bring conflict and conquest over his people because of their sin. So, so God's liberation from these enemies is an act of mercy. Why? Because he does not therefore give his people what by their sin they deserve. He relents from his wrath and allows them to experience freedom again. So salvation is a mercy. Thirdly, what what Zechariah communicates here in in his prophetic word is that salvation is a new kind of bondage for a people. See, salvation doesn't just welcome us into some sort of self-determined freedom where we can do and say and think as we please. It's, It's not as though we leave behind bondage and then are just free to do whatever we want. If sin and death, are the chains of a life without Christ, then serving the Lord, Zechariah says, and living in righteousness are the shackles of a redeemed people. See, we are always a people bound to something. You, you don't get to choose shackles or no shackles. It just it matters what you are bound to. We are all bound to something. That's what Zechariah says in verse 74 and 75. We've been saved, what? To serve. We have been saved to serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness. You hear not not to do as you please, but to be bound to his righteousness, to be bound to servitude to him. And our shackles are shared with all of the people of God. See, so, so salvation's promise binds us together and salvation's mercy makes us one and salvation's bondage is shared. This is what makes salvation a communal experience. See, Zechariah is prophesying the communal nature of salvation. And this is not merely an old covenant idea or an old covenant way of thinking, meaning that to think communally about salvation is not something of an Old Testament doctrine relegated to the people of Israel. The apostle Peter explained salvation this way to the scattered church in the first century, to the New Testament church. First Peter chapter two, verses four through five, as Uh, You come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone, Peter says, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So salvation is communal still. And from this communal vision, Zechariah moves back to the personal, but the personal is so bound up in in the communal, he never quite pulls them apart. He never quite fully gets away from this idea. Let's read on verse 76 in Luke chapter one. And you, child, speaking about his son, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So salvation is communal. And John's task is very personal. John's task will be to follow in the way of the prophets and this heritage of the prophets as a prophet himself, proclaiming salvation's promise, explaining that there is this forgiveness of God through salvation's mercy and explaining this new life as salvation's bondage to serve and serving the Lord in righteousness. See, John's entire purpose is captured uh, in, in Zechariah's words in this motif of light and darkness. And in the Bible, throughout the Bible, light is, a, is, is about knowledge. It's about glory and reality and power. It's a gift that comes from outside of ourselves, something we don't possess or conjure up, something we do not earn. It's something that just is and is bestowed upon us in, in, in his language like the sunrise. And, and this light causes us to see God, and, and not just God, but to see the world rightly. It's what led writer C.S. Lewis to say, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See, salvation itself, God himself, is the light that shined in the darkness and the darkness, the powers of darkness have not overcome. They have no rebuttal. This is what John launches uh, forth from his gospel account in John chapter one. But the, John the baptizer, John has a specific role to play in the story of God's saving work. So we can see that, that Zachariah's salvation and John's calling, the different John than wrote the gospel account, John's calling, each have a personal and individual aspect, which is meant to find its purpose and fulfillment within the story of God's entire people. This is not just about him finding his own special purpose disconnected. It is for the community. It's within the community. And even in Peter's words, we are living stones, yes, but we're built together into a spiritual house. We are all saints, yes, but we are also part of a holy priesthood together. So, Yes, salvation is communal, but it has these personal aspects and you can't quite pull them apart. Salvation is is the light of God, which has opened our eyes and and our eyes personally and our eyes together as his people to see things that are true, to see things that are real. This is is ultimately what the light, light does is it reveals truth to us about ourselves, about our community together as God's people. So how do we account for this duality of our salvation, this this idea that is both communal and personal? Where where does this come from? Because if we're not careful, our mind is drawn in one direction or or another. So why must it be both? How are these things held together? Well, like anything, we need to look to God. Because as as always, if, if we want to understand ourselves, if I want to know myself best, I must look not within myself, but ultimately to God. And this is vital and completely contrary to every fallen inclination in me and around me and in you and around you. We don't do this naturally. Church, we do not look to God naturally. 
I do not look to God naturally. You do not look to God naturally. Marvadon, the great author, explains that the very essence of sin, she says, is narcissism. That, but that tendency to be inward turned or curved in on oneself is especially aggravated, she says, by our present culture. So everything within me, pick up on how hard this is. Everything within me, in other words, personally, and everything around me, therefore communally, tells me to look within myself to find my center, and if you please, to find the light necessary for salvation, either in big ways or in small ways. I believe that my salvation is within me, and I must just look and find and search for it. See, we do not naturally look to God. We do not naturally look for God. This is why regularly opening up Bibles is not simply a good habit, but it is morally necessary. It is necessary for us to have this particular discipline because it is the light that shines truth in my heart and truth in this world. When we don't open the Bible, when we don't open our Bibles, it's like living with the lights off. We wonder why we don't hear or see God when we have not opened his word. And this is not meant to beat, beat us down if we haven't been doing it, but, but meant to encourage us to say, this is the remedy. The remedy is to open up God's word and look to him and see him. Because no matter what God is saying in his word, he is always saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is my character. This is my likeness. This is my power. This is my grace. This is my mercy. This is my love. This is my affection. This is, this is my glory. He is always revealing of all of the things he graciously reveals, he is always revealing his character. So we must open his word. It gets our attention on him. And when we look at him in considering this nature of salvation, when we look to him, we see the God who is one yet three. He is father, he is son, he is spirit, and yet he is the one and only God. This means that, that God is known as and only within the community of himself. This is the community of God. He is one, yet three, and we are made in his image. Therefore, it should be unsurprising to us. It, it makes perfect sense then that salvation of his prized creation would be both personal, one, and many, communal. There should be both of these aspects that should never be pulled apart. Suffice to say, the nature of God makes us very uncomfortable when it comes to many different things. And this particular doctrine, the Trinity, specifically, I think, makes us very uncomfortable or perhaps just confused. And this leads some of us to have certain behaviors within community that I think are important to address. A few ways that we sort of relate to community, I think, come from a wrong view of God. Uh, through my many years in church ministry in church community and being part of the community, I've noticed a number of different habits of the heart, if you will, that persist, not just in the church at large, but that I, I see and I even participate in myself at church in the square. See, sometimes I think we fear that we're going to get lost in community. One of the reasons that we don't engage, perhaps. So we gravitate towards maybe smaller, away from larger to smaller churches, believing that we'll be seen better, and so, and so we, we don't want to get lost, if you will, in, in the shuffle. And so community sort of is, is necessary. We know we need friendships, but we don't want to get lost in the grandeur of it all. Other times we fear we'll get hurt by community. 
And this happens in no matter what size church we might find ourselves in. This keeps us, though, from sharing our sin, from sharing the burdens of the community or the surrounding neighborhood that we uh, live in. We don't let people in. We don't try to share life with others. Both come from fear, fear of not being seen or rather getting lost in community or fear of being hurt by community. And sometimes in almost an opposite kind of way, we hope to be celebrated by community. In fact, we, we look to the community, we use the community, in fact, to elevate our own importance, our own priorities, and our own celebrity. And to be sure, I'll be frank with you, especially in light of many uh, stories nationally taking place around this particular idea, it, it, it is a tendency most notably for professional ministers, whether pastors or ministry leaders, to look to community to make us feel important. It's a temptation that I feel. It's a temptation that I have to confess and admit that ultimately I can look to the church, the church community to serve me and my ends so that I'd be elevated, so that I would be known, so that my voice, my faith, whatever, I would be central. And those things are evil. And those are part of the dark powers of this broken world that pull at us, telling us, as Marvadon writes, that I should look within myself to find myself, my own power, my own light. See, regardless if we fear we'll get lost in community, or if we fear being hurt by community, or if we uh, use community for our purposes, at the end of the day, we're all still looking at ourselves as the reason for our engagement within community. We are still the centerpiece of our story within a church family. See, for many of us, Self-determinism or, or leading my own life under my own power, my own autonomy is a baseline value, which we may not even realize that we participate in, that we value and that we possess, meaning that we presume if we work hard then and have these big dreams of work and family and money, then these dreams will materialize. That, that these things that I desire, these things that, that, I, that I want. And so ultimately what we can do is just look for a church community that will ultimately bless those things and help those things to come about. Because a lot of times we believe that's how we see God. And however we see God, that's kind of what we want our church to be like. Whatever we think God is like, we want to look for a church community like that. And so if we think that God is just going to bless our dreams that we've dreamt up, and he goes, wow, that's super, go do that. And then we get in a community that asks us questions about it, that push back a little bit about that uh, preconceived notion or that tendency, then, then we leave that church because we want to go and find a community that simply affirms what we want to do. If we believe that God cares about sort of another way of thinking about it, if we believe that God cares about the disenfranchised, then we want to be a part of a church that cares about the disenfranchised. And, and the point really here is this, not what is your view of God, but is your view of God accurate? Is your view of God in line with scripture? See, I'm tempted to think that who I am is up to me and up to my vision. And, and, and ultimately, I need the lights to be on, if you will. I need the scriptures to be open because salvation, if we're not careful, then if we have this kind of um, self-determined, self-centered view of our faith, of, our, of, of God and of our church family, then salvation becomes a sort of a divine validation of my life goals and the things that I uh, have already determined to be good and right. I'm just looking for a God and a community to validate those and not question them. See, we see ourselves as individuals in this case, not as a people. And this is what's really important. And this is what, what Zachariah would, would have completely been foreign to him in the way that we often operate. 
And then the people then in the church, when we have this view, simply become part of our personal stories of faith and we don't become part of the story of a community. So really what we're looking for often is a church to be a part of our story and not considering ourselves to be those who are joining the story of God's people, joining the story of the church. And this kind of thinking is actually a recent phenomenon in our cult, in our country and in the American church. Journalist David Brooks, uh, who I read and speak about often, uh, explains that only up until recently, like the last 60 years or so, have we in the West begun to see ourselves as individuals. Brooks says that in years past, uh, people extended to neighbors the sorts of devotion that today we extend only to family. So to be sure, many of us are disconnected from our biological families, the families we grew up with, but we've made a family at, here in the city, for, for sure, many through close friends. But today, we, we're generally skeptical of others. We don't trust easily. We rarely lay down our defenses long enough to be known by a community and to be questioned and critiqued and loved that well, to have the, the truth spoken in love by a community, for them to become part of our consciousness and we in turn part of theirs, like the way that, that they think about the world and they think about you and I think about you and we think together about one another in a community, like, like you come up, and in other words, practically speaking, that what this kind of community ought to look like, that is, even though we may have really dear friends, uh, right now that, that we kind of share when we make big life decisions, we talk to them first. We very rarely have people with whom we make decisions with, or we bring them uh, our questions or our, our desires when they're in process and say, is this right? Is this good for me? Is it, would this be good for the community? And sort of laying that down before the community together. See, our modern self-concept then is really devoid of what biblical community is all about. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like me at all. That, that's, I, I, that the frame of thinking you're talking about with self being at the center of the community is very foreign to you. In truth, what I've just described, albeit with a really broad brush, so give me grace and I'll give it to you, uh, is, is a modern, upwardly mobile, by and large, generally white mentality. For most people of color, particularly those of an immigrant family or from an immigrant community, a communal self-concept is natural and completely common. You, you know instinctively, or they know instinctively rather, what Henry Nouwen describes as the great joy of being chosen, the discovery that others are chosen as well. That, that kind of celebration for many people is totally normal. It's something that they taught, but being known within a community is part of the fabric of their, of their many heritage uh, many heritages. The, the shadow side, though, of this upbringing and the mindset of being, is, is being hesitant to embrace a, a unique call that, that might set you apart from the community in some way, kind of like John was receiving here at best. And at worst, it's feeling as though your body and your very being is swallowed up in the whole. So here's one reason I think that becoming a multi-ethnic church is really so hard. We see community and salvation, therefore, very differently, simply because we are coming from very different places. And both perspectives have merit and both perspectives have flaws. Culturally, we either reject the notion of being known as a people or the idea of being known as a person. 
these are obviously extreme views of this that, that may not be exactly the way that you've lived those experiences, but somewhere along the way, these are the things that begin to influence our consciousness of how I see myself within a community. But in truth, and here's what we need to hear, church, you and I are neither the point nor the problem of our spiritual family. You and I are neither the point nor the problem of our spiritual family. We are simply and joyfully part of a spiritual family. You're neither the point, but you are neither the problem. You and I are a part. Our hope in this confusion of personhood and community, our hope is a kind of community which you are neither exalted nor erased. Being part of a people in which you are neither the point nor the problem. And there's something I think in Luke's summary of what happens next of the life of John the baptizer, life of John the Baptist in verse 80, in verse 80 that helps us to understand this. Look at it with me. Luke chapter one, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So so notice that John personally, and in a very private kind of way, grows in the strength of the spirit But his growth was for a particular purpose. It wasn't just for him. There is this impending, this coming public appearance to Israel, to the people of God. See, he would give light to those in darkness very soon, years after he takes this time to be marked by God's word, to be marked by God's spirit. And all of his work would be the self-giving, self-sacrificing. It would not be about self-preservation, but he did need to be as an individual built up by God's spirit, strengthened by God's spirit. It was personal, but it was also for the people. It was communal. This is why John had been saved. This is why he had been set apart. In fact, he would give himself to Jesus and for the people of God to the point that he... Uh, would begin to be put in prison over and over again, and he would put his life on the line. In fact, in one of those imprisonments, in Luke chapter 7, John sends word to Jesus. And here's how Luke records it, Luke 7, uh, 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men came, uh, when had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that's Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are healed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what's this about? To this point, John has given up a great deal for Jesus. And he wants to be sure that he has given up, he has sacrificed, he has suffered rightly because this is salvation, because this is the light, because Jesus is the real Messiah. He wants to make sure all that he has done has been for the truth, not for a lie. 
Now, let's think just for a second how amazing this question is. Remember, people ask questions for different reasons. John is asking a question. Are you the one? The question is, is John coming at this arrogantly? Is he coming at it proudly? Is he coming at it presumptively? Or is he coming like Mary? Is he coming humbly? Is he coming before the Lord Jesus because he's curious? I I think what's really interesting is what John doesn't ask and sort of help us to understand whether or not he's coming with pride or with humility. John is in jail and he doesn't say, free me. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if I'm in jail and I think that Jesus is the Messiah, I might lead with that. I might lead with, get me out of jail. And then maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, then I'll know you're the one. Get get me out of here first. But John does not see community this way. John does not see himself at the center of the community. He not only was called not to that purpose, but he has been lived and shaped and formed not for that purpose, to be the center of the community. He believes if this is truly the Messiah, then Jesus is the center of the community. So it's not about John, it's about Jesus. And he is asking if this is real. He's asking if Jesus is the one. Why? Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he truly is the one who has come from the living and only God of the universe, then no amount of pain, no amount of suffering, no amount of inconvenience and challenge and trial and tribulation is too great for him and his kingdom because Jesus is at the center of his people. And if Jesus is at the center of his people, no matter what I'm going through, I trust him. He's worthy. This is, this, this is fine. So John comes humbly. John comes humble with this question and Jesus answers him, yes. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, why would he say that? Why would Jesus say that? Because ultimately, when we are the center of our lives, when we are the center of our own community experience, even church family experience, we are deeply offended by this gospel call. We're deeply offended by it because we want to be at the center and therefore we have to die to ourselves in order to come to faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, if if sin is the centering of self, then then repentance is the de-centering of self and that's hard. Believing in Jesus that he ultimately is the one, to put it in more biblical and regal language, is the one who belongs on the throne and not you and not me. That he is the cornerstone of his church. That he is the head of his people the church, that he is the groom and we are the bride. This is why, or rather this is the way that we embrace being part of a saved people. Or, and this is the question we ought to ask ourselves. If we're willing to, to embrace what the scriptures are teaching here, a kind of salvation that is personal and yet communal, I believe that we know that we're a part of the saved people when we're willing to suffer. See, because when we are the point of community, we, we always ask God and the people around us to end our discomfort and pain because we think we should never suffer. That's what I would have asked in my brokenness and in my sin if I was in John's position. When, when we are the problem of community, we always think that God and his people are disappointed or, or disregarding of us, so we deserve suffering and are sort of okay with it, whatever, I'll just go through it, but we don't see the point of suffering. When we are part of a community, though, we realize that for generations, God's people have been saved 
as or saved because of God's promise, saved because of his mercy, saved with this new bondage to serve and to live with righteousness. Therefore, suffering for Christ's sake becomes another marker of what it means to be a part of this spiritual family. After all, we were born out of suffering. We are a people created through the suffering of another. See, Jesus is the one who did not simply call John to suffer in jail. He did not simply call you and I to endure hardships for his purposes, but he himself, hear this from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he himself, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it is his sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, which makes us the people of God. See, so salvation through Jesus means that you are neither exalted out of community nor erased through or by community or within community. You are not saved by the community. It's not your savior. And you are not saved from community as if you were above the community. See, Jesus saves us as a community who are known in community, who suffer with the community for Jesus' sake. Here's what I'm trying to say, church, and remember how much I love you. You are not special, but you matter to God. You are not special above everyone else, but you matter to God like everyone else. See, in Christ, we become part of a community, a kind of community that neither crushes us nor exalts us, but welcomes us into a shared identity as God's people who suffer together for his sake, who endure this light and momentary affliction and one day experience the glory of God. See, isn't that what Zechariah discovered? His logic ultimately within community wasn't ultimate. Because after all, he was a priest and advanced in years. You might think, wow, if Zachariah thinks there's not a way to have a kid in his old age, maybe he's right. And we'll, we'll center his thought. We'll make him the point. But he wasn't the point. But forgiveness and purpose was available to him by grace and mercy. See, he wasn't the problem either. Zachariah wasn't the point. He wasn't above the Lord, but he wasn't a problem. He wasn't out of his reach. He was part of a people saved by God in Christ himself. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be your people. Help us to live as your people today. In Jesus' name.